Amen. Please uh, open up to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just uh, gathering us today as a church. We know, Lord, that you have us here on the Lord's Day to, to read your word, to get into it, to be edified by it. Oh, Lord, please just bless this time of fellowship. Lord, as we look also forward to communion later, may you get all the honor and praise as my brother prayed for, Lord, that you get all the glory. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A teenage girl is struck by a drunk driver and left a vegetable. The drunk driver escapes punishment through a legal technicality. During an outbreak of tribal warfare in Africa, the Christians in one village, they run to their church building for safety. But then some of the women are raped and all the believers are beaten to death. A Texas uh, church group is coming back from a ski trip to Colorado when a tire blows out and the bus goes 500 feet down the mountainside. 34 of 36 die. What can make right such terrible losses and such injustices? Can there be any hope left when all hope seems to be gone? Today's sermon is mainly for those of you who are hurting in need of encouragement, in need of a reminder of the hope we have in Christ, in need of a reminder of the gospel, and we all need to be reminded of the gospel. It is also for those of you that have questions about the end times. However, the context of our passage reveals that the attended audience is not for eschatology experts, but rather believers who are grieving and they need reassurance. Although our passage deals with the end times, the focus is on the hope we have in Christ. Before we get into our text, I want to inform you about the historical background of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. So Paul is on his secondary missionary tour um, in Thessalonica, and he came from the road of Philippi. Acts 17.2 records that Paul preached and debated in the synagogue at Thessalonica for three consecutive Sabbaths. Eventually, members of the Jewish community enlisted men to stir up animosity against the Christians. And a riot broke out, and several Christians were dragged before the authorities. And Paul, he was whisked away by the believers at night, and he soon found himself in Berea to the west, where the gospel was received um, with a more open-mindedness from the Jewish community. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians after receiving a report from Timothy regarding the state of the church in Thessalonica. The letter expresses the apostles' joy and relief that the Thessalonians were continuing firm in the faith despite the premature departure of Paul and his co-workers and the harassment they still suffered from hostile groups. Paul's discussion of matters related to Christ's second coming and the bodily resurrection in both epistles to the Thessalonica, they, that gives us a clue uh, for his occasion of writing, and apparently the briefness of his initial ministry in planting the church did not permit sufficient instruction on God's plan for the consummation of history and its implications for Christians as they wait for the end. Furthermore, Paul's brief stay did not permit much time for teaching on what happens to Christians who die before Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom. As a result, there is a lot of confusion about these matters in this church when Paul the apostle wrote. Much of Paul's letter is devoted to addressing mistaking understandings of the return of Christ and its implication for believers who have already died 
and then helping the Thessalonians to understand when the return of Christ, uh, what it means for the Christian life presently. First Thessalonians is concerned to help believers understand the gospel and its implications for daily living. Since Jesus died for our sins and has been raised from the dead for, from the dead for us, we will receive salvation. Not even death can separate our union with Christ. We have this sure hope that when Christ returns, we will be with him forever, fully sanctified and blameless. Since we have been rescued by God and given salvation in Christ, we must learn to walk in love and to please God. He has called his people not to uncleanliness, but to holiness. And that call entails keeping his commands. Today's sermon, uh, I titled it, The Church's Responsibilities Before the Day of the Lord. Our text is found near the end of Paul's letter. After Paul's introduction, he has a discussion on thanksgiving and hope, and he prays. We arrive to his exhortations to the Thessalonians. In the beginning of chapter 4, he calls them to obedience. Then he commands them to be um, pure, advance in brotherly love, and comfort one another regarding the dead. And we then arrive to the commands regarding the end times. What does Paul call them to do before the day of the Lord? Within this section, or 11 verses, Paul in chapter 5 begins with an introduction, then discusses the manner of the Lord's return, and commands his audience to a holy lifestyle anticipating the return of Christ. So our main text is that which ends this section. We will first go through the context of our passage, then we will examine the two main commands in this text and conclude with applications. All right, let's begin by reading our text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. If you got it, say amen. All right. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 to 11. Let us read. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. All right, let's get into the context. So the context can be found in the preceding verses. In verse 1 of chapter 5, we know that the audience Paul is speaking to are knowledgeable believers. Paul often uses this phrase, you have no need for anyone to write to you throughout his letter. We know from chapter 1 that the Thessalonians are an example for other believers because of their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfast hope in Christ. You can see that in verse 3 of chapter 1. As the first verse in chapter 5 tells us, they have no need for anything to be written to them concerning the periods and time. This is referring to the coming of the Lord that Paul was just discussing in chapter 4, uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 16. These Thessalonians know that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night, as verse 2 tells us. Verse 3 tells us about those who are not knowledgeable. They are saying that there is peace and safety when there is sudden destruction coming on them. They do not know the Lord. They live a lifestyle of sin, and the wrath of God will come upon them. They are like the Pharisees who killed both the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets, persecuted Christians, and displeased God, as 1 Thessalonians 2.15 tells us. They fill up the measure of their sins, and wrath has con uh, come upon them at last. Therefore, our passage has two types of people, uh, with two different lifestyles and two different destinies. 
The two types of people are believers and non-believers. The unbelievers are characterized as being in darkness in verse 4. The believers are children of the day according to verse 5. And there is no in-between. Christianity is not a religion in which one can just dabble. It is not possible to hedge the bet to belonging to both the church and another religious group. One is either of the light or in darkness. Paul emphasizes this in verse 5, that believers are not of the night or of darkness. Those in darkness are spoken about in verse 4, verse 5, when Paul states, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul doesn't just tell his brothers in Christ to not act like unbelievers, but he also tells them how they should act. This will be important for our text because he does the same thing there. In chapter 4 and verses 3 to 4, he tells them to abstain from sexual immorality, control their body in in holiness and honor. In verse 7, we observe the word for, and this is where Paul supports the exhortation with what God has called them to do, and that is to be holy and not impure. This will also relate to our passage because Paul will support his command to the knowledgeable believers with the calling from God. Before Paul's first main command in our passage, he makes a point in the immediate context. In verse 6, he tells the Thessalonians to not sleep as others do, but to keep awake and be what? Sober. This relates to our passage because the first main command is to what? Be sober. Because we get there, uh, before we get there, let us remember that Paul paints a picture of those who are asleep and those who are awake. There are people who do not care about the return of Christ. They are indifferent. They will be surprised when he returns uh, to pour out his wrath on them, and they will have no escape from the destruction that will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. There's no escape of that. They grieve with no hope. You know, recently um, a friend of mine, uh, he had someone very dear to him that passed away, a coach of his, and uh, you could see it in his face. You could see it. He, he had no hope, all right? Uh, unbelievers have no hope. In contrast, those who are awake are prepared for the return of Christ. They have hope when their brother or sister in Christ dies. They are called to keep awake and be sober. The idea of keep will also relate to our passage. We may be doing the right thing now by being sober, but we need to continue or keep being sober. And keep in mind that, Uh, verb there is in the present tense the last verse before our passage is paul again emphasizing the difference between believers and non-believers non-believers aren't sober they're drunk they have no self-control they choose to sin because they love to sin and paul again repeats the normality of those of the night in verse 7 they sleep at night they get drunk at night this is their nature their character what they're accustomed to do all right That was our context. Let us move on to our first main command that we find in our text and answer the question, what do people of the day do before the day of the Lord? Paul commands us to what? Be ready and equipped in our sanctification. We find it in in the first verse. Let's read that verse again. 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So our passage begins with the word but. So we have a contrast 
that we have already identified in our context. What's the contrast? It's between the unbelievers and the believers. After Paul described the unbelievers and their sinful actions, we are now presented with believers and a command for them. They are described as what? Belonging to the day. Children of light are true children of God. They have undergone a transformation that makes a new life, a life in the light, inevitable, not just preferable. Godliness for true sons of the light is not just a matter of appropriate actions. It is an outgrowth of their essential nature, their relationship to God. And we know from our context that belonging to the day is a good thing. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we were once in darkness, but now we are in the light. So picture yourself in a really dark, pitch black room. You cannot see anything. Think about being in darkness as being spiritually blind. You do not care about spiritual things because you cannot see anything. But also, when you think of darkness, think about a comfortable place to rest. You can enjoy your sleep without any interruption. Think about being in darkness as being dead in your sins. You have no one to hold you accountable, and you continue to sin because you enjoy the comfort of it. We once were men who loved darkness rather than light because our deeds were evil, John 3:19 tells us. And the next verse there says, For everyone practices evil, whoever practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Belonging to the day should remind us of verse 5 about being children of the day. The only way we belong to the day is if we've been adopted by Christ. Ephesians 1.5 tells us that he predestined us for adoption as sons through the Lord Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So we are children of the day. We belong to him. This is not our body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20 tells us that we are not our own. We were bought with a price, and we ought to glorify God in our body. This is said in the context of what? Sexual immorality and the importance of being holy. And I hope it's starting to sink in now. You, you Christian, belong to the day. And Paul is reminding us who we are and how we must live. You ought to be holy. You ought to have self-control. What does a sober Christian look like? He is one that walks by the Spirit, one that is characterized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what Paul is getting to with his command. He, he says, let us be sober. Sober alertness, it suits the soldiers who belong to the day. Sober Christians, they're ready for battle and to help their fellow soldiers who may be getting destroyed in battle. They seek to rescue and restore their brothers in gentleness and bear one another's burdens. They examine themselves and bear their own load. They do not quit but fight the good fight. I like how Paul here includes himself when he states, let us. He knows this is a task of every believer. No matter how holy they may be, they are to continue in holiness. This is also called our sanctification. We are called to be set apart. Quote, God has always called his people to holiness after he redeemed his old covenant people, the Israelites, from bondage in Egypt. The Lord told them that they were to be holy as he is holy and that he was the one who sanctified them. The same pattern is present in this letter. God has redeemed his people from the death and resurrection of his son. He has redeemed them precisely so that they may pursue holy lives. 
They pursue the biblical pattern of holiness, knowing that God himself will complete and perfect the work on the day of the Lord's return, end quote. And this brings up an interesting question. Why did God choose us? Why did God redeem us? Ephesians 1 tells us that we, that we should be holy and without blame. For God chose us before the foundation of the world to what? To be holy and blameless before him in love. As believers, we must remember that we are not alone. We have the Holy Spirit. We can live holy lives because we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And we are no longer slaves to sin. We are able to honor God with our lives. And if we truly are believers, we continue to grow in holiness until the day we die or when Christ returns. So the question is, how can we follow this command of being sober or holy in a dark world filled with temptation, with many sins? Well, we need to put on certain equipment for battle. Verse 8, what does it say? It says, the next part, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This armor should paint a picture for us. Without the armor, we can't be alert or sober. We will begin to fall asleep and begin to act like people of the night. This armor relates to the armor of God in Ephesians 6. It is here we learn about putting on the breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, and helmet of salvation. Ephesians 6 states, 11 states, but on the whole, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul makes it clear that we need to do something. We must act. Our text has that same formula. If we are going to be sober, we must put on something. We need to have faith and love. As armor was essential and was characteristic of a soldier, so the essential virtues of faith, love, and hope, as well as the behaviors they imply, must characterize the Christian. The participle translated putting on is aorist, or past tense, and it implies an action before the action of the main verb to be sober, or let us be sober, or self-controlled. So putting on the armor is not a matter of doing something new, but rather a matter of continuing in one's original commitment. The first of the two items to put on is a breastplate. This is what should cover us. This is what protects us from being like people of the night. The Thessalonians' faith in God, we know that it's, it's been going forth everywhere, as chapter 1-8 tells us. And faith and love, that is what should uh, be covering us. We should be people that are loving and faithful. They go hand in hand, right? If you know 1 Corinthians 13, there's faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these are love. Paul wants to get this stuck in our minds. If we don't love others, we won't be sober. If we do not love, we will not stand firm. And who, who do we love? Well, the greatest command is to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourselves. And, and you ask yourself that question. Do you spend time often with the Lord? Do you love him? Does the Spirit in God dwell within you and give you the ability to love others? Brothers and sisters, do not quench the Spirit. Love God, and may your character reflect that as you love others. And Paul knows that the Thessalonians have been taught by God to love one another, but he still urges them to do this more and more. We can't ever reach a maximum in loving our brothers in Christ. So the picture of the breastplate is one that covers the heart and soul. This covers the actions and motives. But what about the mind? The helmet is a better picture for that. 
So yesterday I went uh, airsofting with some uh, young adults from our youth group. And um, I didn't have any, like, protective gear on my head. And I got shot right here, and, and it really hurt. And I was like, man, if I only I had, like, my hoodie or something covering it. And I also got shot in the neck, and it really hurt. And there was another guy who had, like, this really nice, like, um, it looked like Darth Vader. It was like it covered his whole body and, and his whole face and everything. And he was protected. And he, it must have cost, like, 100 something dollars but anyways the point is if i had that helmet on i would have been safe i wouldn't have got hurt but yeah uh you know later if you want to see you can see it's a little bruised but anyway um this helmet it's a better picture for this this helmet is focused on what the hope of salvation in our context we know that these believers have been saved since they turned to god from idols to serve the living and true god in chapter 1 verse 9 so what salvation is this talking about? I mean, all we, we know, salvation, Christ saved us, right? He redeemed us. But what about this salvation? Is it a little different here? Let's see. It's talking about what? The return of Christ. To be saved from this sinful environment and the wrath to come. Uh, from, from the wrath to come. So we have a hope that one day we will be saved and be with God forever. 1 Thessalonians 4 17 was just talking about being caught up together with the Lord and being with him always. So we are saved by the sacrifice of Christ, right, justified, but we will be saved in the future by the return of Christ. And Paul is going to get to this second aspect of salvation in the next verse. But before we get, that, uh, get to that, look at what Paul and how he used the word hope before. In chapter 1 and verse 3, you don't have to go there, he talks about the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 19, he states, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? When discussing the dead, he mentions that those that do not know Christ have no hope. But we have hope, and we have hope in Christ. Quote, The practical hope for Christians in Christ's return is captured by, the, by this uh, catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, to answer this question. What comfort does the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead give you? This is how they answer it. That in all affliction and persecution, I may await with head held high the very judge from heaven who has already submitted himself to the judgment of God for me and has removed all the curse from me that he will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but he shall take me together with all his elect to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Oh, what a hope we have, believer. Put on this hope daily. And Paul states in Romans 13, 11 to 14, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What salvation? Again, the second aspect of salvation. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. And Paul again tells believers here, they are to do something. Christians are not called to relax during the battle on the surf. We are called to be active. You know, going back to uh, the airsoft story, um, 
a lot of us had to run up the hill, go in a truck and all that. And sometimes, you know, you would ask for a medic and you needed someone to, to come and revive you and all that. And um, it, it was a war. It was a battle. We were going against enemies. And, and that's just a small picture of what the spiritual war looks like. This Christian walk, uh, our Christian walk, it's going to require hard work. You know, I'm a little sore. My legs are a little tired from yesterday. This is going to be hard work, believers. And do you know what you signed up for? Another thing to notice in this text is that salvation that Paul is talking about is the one to come. This is the same salvation our text is talking about. So we need to put on the breastplate of, of um, uh, we need to put on the breastplate, we need to put on the helmet, all right, of faith and love and, and of hope. Our mind should be fixed on this hope we have in Christ, the hope at his first coming when he saved us from our sins and the future hope of his second coming when he will save us from the wrath to come. Thinking about this salvation will protect you from living a lifestyle of sin. The more we think about the gospel, the more it protects us from disobeying God. And it's hard to disobey God in the middle of church service, right? Everyone comes to church, we have this smile, and we're, we're ready to hear the word and the gospel. Then when we go home, the smile go, you know, starts to come down a bit, and temptation is just knocking on your door. Do you cave in? Or do you preach the gospel to yourself? If you preach the gospel to yourself, you are putting on that helmet I was talking about. You're protecting yourself. The hope of salvation that we have should cause you to shout like Joseph in the midst of temptation with Potiphar's wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? 1 Peter 1.13 tells us, Therefore, grit up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Amazing grace indeed. May we not abuse this grace, but rather embrace it. All right, let's continue here. Read the next part of our verse in verse 9 again and examine how it supports our main point of being sober or holy. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so the word for, it recalls the command before. Why are we to be sober? Because we have been destined to obtain salvation through Christ. The idea of being with Christ forever should cause us to want to be holy. We deserve his wrath because of our every sin, but we will not taste any of it because of the sacrifice of Christ. And brings up another question. Who's responsible for this salvation? For God, God, and all glory to God. It's God, no glory to man. We did not save ourselves. If it were not for God predestining us to salvation, we would be like the people of the night. Living our life without any conviction, living our life for, uh, for our own praise and glory, thinking about peace and safety when destruction would come to us. That would have been our destiny, wrath, hell, and, our, and just being in outer darkness. But, but God has not destined us to wrath, but what? but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love reading about the contrast in Scripture. You know, the, the biggest one uh, that I think everyone knows is Ephesians 2, and it discusses our previous state of darkness. Verse 3 states, Among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But... But what? 
But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Oh, what amazing grace. You know, just singing that song reminded me I was blind, but now I see. And what an awesome God we serve. We do not deserve to be saved. We deserve his wrath. And praise God for saving wretched sinners like us. And I am sure, brothers and sisters, we will not grow weary for all of eternity praising our Lord Jesus Christ for saving us. And why did he save us? I'm going to repeat it again so we can get it stuck in our minds. You know, why did he save us? Why did he choose us? All these questions, right? Yes, he loves us. Yes, for the praise of his glory. Yes, according to the good pleasure of his will. Yes, to show the exceeding riches of his grace to his kindness towards us. But do not forget, so that we should be holy and without blame before him. Ephesians 2 states, uh, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. God wants us to be holy. He created us to be holy. Are we acting like people of the day or people of the night? Are you living in holiness, which by Hebrews, uh, by the way, Hebrews 12, 14 says that, to pursue holiness without no one shall see the Lord. We need to be holy. This is serious stuff. And my intention is not to discourage you, but to rather encourage you to examine yourself. And if you are living in holy, holiness, keep on living in holiness. Keep your eyes fixated on Christ. Continue being self-controlled. Do not let your guard down. 1 Peter 5.8 states, Be sober, be vigilant. What does that mean? Watchful, alert, aware, because... Why should we be alert and sober, Peter? Why, Peter? Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking, ho- seeking who he may devour. I mean, if you've ever been close to a lion, I, I'm sure you're just going to run away. Um, that's, that's the devil. He's seeking those who he may devour. And Christian, you're in this battle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we're called to resist the devil. So we are to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and cast our cares about him, upon him, the one who cares for us. And he's the one who's going to mature, establish, and strengthen us. And remember, he called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, all glory to the God of all grace, All right, let's continue with the next part of verse 9. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Christ didn't die for himself. He had no sins to die for. He died for us. We are the wicked sinners in need of rescue. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Because of his death, we can now have life even If we die, we do not need to fear death, beloved, since we have an everlasting hope. Whether we are awake or asleep brings us back to our context in chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. All right, what's, what's that asleep talking about? Are they really sleeping? No, they're dead. The gospel gives us assurance that if our brother or sister in Christ dies, 
we will be reunited again. We do not grieve like those that do not have hope. We grieve with tears that one day will all be wiped away from our eyes. An example of this from my church, um, a couple weeks ago, a dear brother of Christ died because of COVID, and he was like a grandpa to many. He was living that holy lifestyle, and in our church, we were just sad uh, when we heard the news, but we have hope. We have real hope that we'll be reunited. We have real hope that he is with Christ. One last thing we have to notice in verse 9 is that we will live with him. It's all about him. Our hope in Christ is that we will be with Christ. We should be motivated to be holy because we want to be closer to Christ. He should be your best friend, all right? We want to be with Christ. We look forward to his return. I don't know, maybe... um, Maybe you're married and, and you didn't see your husband or your wife for a, a couple days and, and, and maybe a week and you're just like, wow, I'm back. Yes, I, I look forward to re- returning, coming back and, and seeing you. We should have uh, more of this eagerness to want to see Christ at his return. I, I can't wait to see you face to face, my Lord. And as we think about his return, it should cause us to walk in holiness. So, We look to what Christ has done for us in the past, and we look forward to what he will do in the future. Both the accomplished work of Christ and his future return then give form and direction to the Christian's life in the present. Let us move on to the second main command in our text, and we're going to read verse 11 again. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Therefore, recalls everything that was just said therefore so with those things in mind paul gives another exhortation the first one was to be sober right self-control be holy all that the second one is to encourage and build one another up i like uh, my translation here too it says therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing so a good way to remember these two commands for today uh, could be re- could be to remember four S's, all right? So the Savior called calls the saved to be sober and supportive, all right? Anyways, the interesting thing about his second exhortation is that he says they are already doing it. It is like in chapter 4, verse 10, when Paul says, they are loving all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So the idea here is that they are to do this more and more, just like loving one another. Keep encouraging. Keep building one another up. Uh, Also in chapter 4, Paul tells the Thessalonians to do what? To encourage and comfort one another with these words when they're talking about uh, the return of Christ. Comfort one another with these words. So these believers are going through much persecution, as chapter 1, verse 6 tells us, that they received the word in much affliction. And verse 7 tells us that they became an example to all believers. They were a church that encouraged and built each other up. And Paul doesn't congratulate them and throw a party. He warns them to not go to sleep. We are soldiers. We are not cheerleaders. He tells them to keep doing what they're called to do. We must get up every morning and and work hard. I'm sure many of you guys can relate to that. You, you get up every morning and you work hard. Same thing as a believer. You get up every morning and you work hard for the glory of God. We are a part of a huge family, a family that needs each other. And um, Galatians 6, 
2 says, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. We should be thinking about the edification of the church and not just our own sanctification. We need to use the gifts God has given us through the Spirit and support one another. At my job, we call the people uh, we work with the people we support. Well, I'm going to borrow that phrase for a second. Uh, The church is the people we support. It is our duty to support one another. Ephesians 4.11 states, And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For what? Building up the body of Christ. We may all have different callings here, but we are all called to support. And then in verse 15 and 16 of that uh, Ephesians 4, we remember the source of how the body gets built. It states, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So it's Christ who unites us. However, we each got to do our own parts. For example, it's not the sole responsibility of the pastor to support the church. The whole church is called to support the church. So, our two main commands is to, to follow are to be sober, and the second is to encourage and build one another up. In other words, your responsibilities before the day of the Lord are to work on your sanctification and to support the church. Be holy and help others to be holy too. In conclusion, we have examined what Paul want, wanted the Thessalonians to do. They are to be sober or holy and encourage or comfort one another. As people of the day, they are to act like people of the day. That means they abstain from sinful actions like drunkenness, and we should be in the business of doing God's will, and that is to live a life of holiness, not hypocrisy. So ask yourself, how's your prayer life? I need to ask myself that question every day. I also need to ask my brothers in Christ that same question too. How's your prayer life? Be accountable with one another. That is how we will grow in Christ. Ephesians 5.18 tells us, And do not get drunk with wine, in which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, the next verse tells us, it says, We are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks. Are you a person that always gives thanks? The parallel text in Colossians tells us in chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Notice the one another's, right? It's community. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Do you sing to the Lord, beloved? So, another question. How is your time in God's word, right? We saw that let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. How is your time in the Bible? Imagine going to battle without the sword of the Spirit you will not stand firm, all right? I mean, yesterday, once again, I'll go back to my story one last time. Um, the rental guns weren't working. And when I went into that battle, I was a sitting duck, all right? Um, I was basically target practice for them because the ca- it wasn't working. You know, the thing was, the magazine was jammed or whatever. Point is, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. We are to use it. We are to memorize it. It should be in our hearts. And we cannot uh, live a holy life without the word of God dwelling richly in us, without Christ. He is 
the armor we need to put on daily. He is the example we follow in Christ. He truly cares for his brothers. He laid down his life for the church, and we are to love the church with, his, with that same love. We are a family and are united through Christ. If someone is down, we ought to do all we can to pick them up. We shouldn't seek only our spiritual life to be strong, but also the spiritual walk of others. Therefore, here are four applications for us, all right? Four applications. Number one, we ought to be in the word of God on the regular and spend time with our Lord daily. We will not be a holy vessel for the Lord if we take a break on our spiritual walk. So what is the last time you've spent some real time with God? I'm talking about some real time. Think about it in this way. Sometimes you're around your wife, but you aren't there emotionally for her. She doesn't feel like you're present because you aren't talking to her or giving her any real attention. And many times we treat God like we know he's there, but we don't say much to him. We keep it bottled inside and procrastinate our time with him. We might put other things before him. And this is idolatry. We need, we need that to end. We need to run to him and honor him with all our heart. All right, number two. We ought to preach the gospel and future salvation we have in Christ to ourselves daily. He has saved us from much and he will save us from much. We can have hope in difficult times because we know that he saved us before and he will save us again at his return. Picture yourself in a marathon and you're halfway done. You look back at the beginning when Christ saved you and you are filled with joy because you have been forgiven of all your sins and, and you have this promised eternal life. Do you just stop running? No, you must also look forward, press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5 states, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be, re to be revealed in the last time. So you meditate on the return of Christ, and it's going to help you in your walk with God. All right, number three. We ought to reach out to the church in love. When was the last time you asked your brother or sister in Christ how they were doing spiritually? You might be doing great, but we're also called to check on how our brothers are doing. We're, we are in this together. We are a part of one body, yet different members. A discussion on or sermon about the end times shouldn't divide us. It should unite us as we think about the future salvation we have in Christ at his second coming. All right, last one, number four. We ought to depend on Christ. We might be overwhelmed by the many temptations in the world. It is so much easier to, it may seem, to not be a Christian. We can avoid persecution if we don't seek to live a godly life. But we should remember, Christ got through it. He gives us the strength to get through all things. We can truly say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, like Paul said it in the midst of persecution. Christ is coming soon, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Keep pressing on and fix your eyes on him who died for you. Christ is worth it. And when things happen that break your heart, like a loved one passing away, we ought to depend on the God of comfort. 
All right, so I want to end with a passage of Scripture that I think will encourage us to do good works as we go throughout this week and battle as soldiers for Christ. So if you can go just to Titus 2, should be to your right. Titus 2, after Timothy. Uh, Titus 2, verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reminder to be holy, to love the church, to be supportive, care for one another. Lord, you've been so good to us. And God, you've called us, you've chosen us, you've predestined us to be holy and blameless. So Lord, please help us as we go throughout our week to remember we're soldiers, we're in this battle. Though we may not be able to see it, Lord, you give us eyes to see by faith. So God, please help us. Help us to be strong in the Lord. Help us to stand firm for the evil one, the devil is looking for who to devour. May we see that you are with us. Lord, we put you on. You are the Lord Jesus Christ that we need to put on daily. So, Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.